I'm Amber Duke. I'm Will Chamberlain. I'm Inez Stepman. And I'm Jeremy Carl. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a great show for you today covering a wide array of topics per usual. We'll be hitting on the latest regarding the Senate bipartisan immigration bill, the text of which has now been released. Will's going to take us through the details of that. Inez will walk us through Nikki Haley's recent SNL appearance and her uh, apparent bid for independence. I will talk about a recent article from the New York Times that suddenly discovered detransitioners. And Jeremy will close us out with why white Americans are quiet quitting. So with that, Will, why don't you kick us off? All right. So as Amber mentioned, uh, we this weekend, uh, the, the text of the Senate negotiated bipartisan border bill was released, um, primarily negotiated by James Lankford at the behest of Mitch McConnell, and it was abysmal. Um, it did not appeal to basically the entire right. And as of this moment, it looks like it's going to die very quickly uh, because even Mitch McConnell is saying that he's he recommends nobody vote to proceed with it. Um, the there's a, There were a number of foundational problems with this bill. I mean, it was reported that it would allow 5,000 migrants into the country uh, before the border was closed. Um, it's not that that almost that isn't quite right. It's that uh, supposedly at this 5,000 number, there was going to be a mandatory shutdown. But even that mandatory shutdown had loopholes and discretion. And that's sort of the problem throughout the bill, which is the presence of these loopholes and discretion. The entire reason that you might want to pass border legislation as a Republican right now is to constrain the discretion of Biden and, and Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, because they've been abusing their discretion to release um, millions of Americans into the millions of immigrants, rather, sorry, millions of illegal aliens into the country. Um, and they've been derelict in their duty of enforcing immigration law. And they, they also repealed the executive orders that came from the Trump administration that maintained some, some semblance of order on the border. Uh, so the idea that they would have more discretion or a bill that gave them any discretion at all would do anything for the border was obviously ridiculous. But yet, what James Langford has negotiated is a bill that's riddled with loopholes, riddled with exceptions, and then has a whole bunch of goodies um, for the the Democrats on the border. Uh, goodies that include things like any litigation that any lawsuits that happen under this bill about the Biden administration's immigration policy are going to be resolved in the district court for the District of Columbia, not in Texas, not in Arizona, but in the D.C. Circuit, which is stacked with Democrat judges. And means that if there's any ambiguity in the text of the statute, if there's any leeway about the extent of the president's discretion to not do anything, well, it'll be Democrat judges resolving that question and they'll resolve it in favor of the president. Um, that's just one goodie. Another one is a free immigration, essentially taxpayer funded immigration lawyers for some illegal aliens. Now, many of these would be minors, but even so, these people don't they don't need lawyers. They need at most they would need social services to help before they go back across the border when they're deported. Um you have a, a slew of other pro provisions on um, a codifying catch and release, um, giving Mayorkas the discretion to essentially approve asylum without going through an immigration court um, and also approving work permits for people who are like waiting, pending, waiting for their asylum proceedings. 
if you want to talk about something that will be a magnet for more and more people to cross the border and claim asylum, it is precisely giving people work permits so that they can work in the interim while their asylum claims are being processed, which can take years. Um, so far from actually resolving the border crisis, this will just massively increase it. The most that could be said for it would be that it would do a little more to funnel um, crossings towards the ports of entry a little more, but that's that's about essentially the extent of the benefit that Republicans might accrue from that, and it would do nothing to actually stop the massive inflow of illegal immigrants into the country and, to, and the enormous amount of crime and overextend public services that that causes. And then finally, you, you, you also realize that this is not the entire point of this is sort of the supposed carrot for the right to agree to a massive expansion of funding of the Ukrainian war. There's 60 billion that's going to Ukraine. And the idea is that this is the carrot that will get the right to agree to this. Um, and so obviously all of this is ridiculous. The Democrats are, are playing a few silly games here. One of them is pretending that now, well, if the Republicans don't pass this, it's Republicans fault and at the border, they won't do anything, but rather you, <laughs> we literally have a bill that's actually going to make the border crisis worse. Um, and they're also upset that Republicans are apparently not going to go for their negotiated agreement. Well, that's what happens when you negotiate with people who don't actually represent the base. You negotiate with James Langford, who's just a, a total establishment squish and doesn't have any connection to what hardliners or the House GOP wants. You kept the House GOP out of the negotiations entirely. If you had negotiated this bill with Mitt, uh, Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, there wouldn't be all these problems and you'd get a bill that something resembles a lot more like H.R. 2. So... Um, I'm very happy to see that the Senate GOP has been essentially been bullied by the entire conservative base to to not uh, go forward with this bill. I think it's embarrassing, really, really embarrassing for James Lankford. I almost feel bad for him because Mitch McConnell's throwing him under the bus in this manner. And uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm hoping that this doesn't get resurrected and that if anything, we go with HR2. Yeah, I mean, I think the the summary of everything you've just said, Will, is that this bill provides the blessing of actual law to much of the intolerable state at the border uh, under Joe Biden. And it gives essentially the imprimatur of U.S. immigration law to many of the de facto, because that's the argument, right, from Republicans is, oh, this is better than the de facto like situation that Joe Biden has, has created on the border. Yeah, but that's going to put us in a worse situation to actually bless that with law going forward. Um, well, instead, and also giving up the issue of actually pointing the finger at Joe Biden and saying, this is your choice. Um, you could fix the situation if you wanted to. Um, you know, I, I'm really glad also, Will, you pointed to that that uh, state lawsuits element, that this is going to route all of those lawsuits through D.C. Um, I think that is a direct attempt to prevent uh, exactly the case that we've been talking about, to prevent narrowing Arizona against the United States, to prevent the states from under the Supreme Court possibly gaining some amount of ability to duplicate federal law. <laughs> um, of course, that would matter less if the federal law basically, again, um, legitimizes the unlawful situation currently on the border. Um, so another little tidbit, it has a, just, just to highlight how bad the situation is on the border and our current sort of um, de facto state. It has an element in the bill about uh, turning away cr uh, criminals at the border, like actual like border patrol knows your re you have a criminal record currently that doesn't happen you can still claim asylum right so we're not even bouncing people with known criminal records right now um, and the republican party again is supposed to take this as some kind of great wonderful compromise that we're going to turn around known criminals from the border as though that's like sort of the baseline of of the disagreement um 
So yeah, really, uh, really glad to see Republicans, as as Will said, I think it's a good phrase, get bullied uh, by their own base uh, and into rejecting this. However, I would add one note of, of a little bit of uh, downside. I do think this is a good political move for the Democrats, which is part of the reason why it's so ridiculous that Mitch McConnell, and now I, I, I share Will's uh, sympathy a little bit for Lankford, right? I think McConnell made him the face of this, and now he's throwing him under the bus, right? This is really a McConnell bill. But why McConnell and moderate Republicans went along with this po essentially political gambit from the Democratic Party to hang an issue where they're getting absolutely hammered uh, uh, in the polls on around the necks of Republicans. And I, we all know that it's ridiculous to say, like, oh, Republicans are the reason that we don't have order at the border. But if you take into account the control over media, et cetera, et cetera, I actually think this is quite a good piece of political jujitsu, and there's going to be a lot of people not paying a lot of attention who will now flip into the mode of thinking, oh, this is Republicans' fault. They wanted that issue for the election, blah, 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 blah. So um, once again, you know, the right getting getting shot in the foot by its own fifth column really is the story here. Yeah, I would completely agree with you. And and I think Will and I were probably competing to who had the most tweets to get rid of Mitch McConnell yesterday uh, based on this. And I mean, obviously, at the baseline, I'd like to get rid of Mitch McConnell. But I actually think that this is sort of penetrated into the muscle fiber of more people in the GOP right now, because as, as you just mentioned, and as this was such a spectacular and unnecessary self-own politically on our best issue I mean, I was talking kind of on background with a, a very, very prominent um, mainstream media political reporter about this yesterday. And I kind of was like, I, you know, other than him kneecapping Trump and wanting to do that, I can't even give you a theory of the case for why Mitch McConnell would have done this when it was obvious that this was going to happen for weeks, if not months. Um, and so it's it's just frustrating. It's a mystery. Um, as, as Will touched on, I mean, to me, part of the frustration has been the media, as it likes to do, covering this exclusively, not exclusively, but a lot of this, again, as horse race stuff, rather than talking about some of these specific provisions, talking about how this uh, enshrines effectively into law, the Flores decree, which is a consent decree, which which basically gave us king kids in cages, quote unquote. So now we're going to like put that in law that either you kind of give all amnesty or kids in cages, or that's, that's your two choices. So it's just, it was disastrous on substance, it's disastrous on politics. Um, it couldn't be a bigger failure. And where it needs to end is we need a new leadership team in the GOP. And I get that that's, you know, it's not going to be the Mike uh, Lee, Ta Ted Cruz wing, but uh, they need to have a voice in it. And it needs to be somebody who is broadly acceptable to uh, the senators in the, the caucus, not just representing the sort of failed establishment that is uh, also at war, as best I can tell, with our presumptive nominee. There are so many things in this bill that infuriated me. And I think I said last week that I was cyberbullying James Langford, and I'm still doing that to this day. He, so he's he's still defending the bill, by the way, despite all of the objections that we laid down. I mean, a few more just for clarification's sake and information's sake. The uh, 5,000 count does not even include unaccompanied minors, which are a pretty significant portion of uh, of current illegal immigrants coming across the border. It also says that unaccompanied minors and families cannot be detain detained. They're all given alternatives to detention, um, which is exactly how we got kids in cages in the first place, because we had an unaccompanied minor crisis during the Obama administration because they had this exact policy on unaccompanied minors and incentivized them coming without parental units 
Um, and then you'll see the left now touting the endorsement of the Border Patrol Union. And look, I like Brandon Judd. I think he's right on a lot of policy issues. But ultimately, what is the uh, goal of a union? It's to secure more money for your employees and to secure more money to hire more employees. And this bill does have funding for more Border Patrol agents. So beyond that, like, let's talk to actual rank and file Border Patrol agents. It's pretty obvious where they stand on this bill. Despite what the union has said, it's another useful diversion from the Democrats that Brandon Judd has released this statement um, endorsing this bill and really unfortunate. Um, I wish we had more time on this because I could I could go on myself for hours, but we're going to move over to uh, Inez talking about Miss Nikki Haley, who um, recently said or previously said back in 2015 that you can't call illegal immigrants criminals. So uh, sort of a, a fitting transition there. Yeah, I mean, just to add to the list of things that Nikki Haley has bad instincts on, uh, at least if one were to assume that she is trying to appeal in any way to the right, um, you can add the fact that she appeared on SNL. Uh, and she did more than appear on SNL. She appeared on SNL to basically make a series of jokes. I mean, I don't know if you can even call them jokes at this point because SNL is so just not funny anymore. Um, but in any case, to make a series of sketches, uh, participate in a series of sketches uh, mocking Donald Trump and Republican voters. Um, so uh, the reason I bring up this is there's a few questions that come out of this. One, you know, sort of who is Nikki Haley trying to appeal to? What is her game here? Um, some people have speculated that it's to try to get the VP slot. Um, I don't think I said, I think last week that I, I hope she continues to run and, and make Trump angry if only because it's less likely for him to pick her. But I'm revising that a little bit. I mean, if you think about all of the people um, that Trump has brought back into his fold after insulting him, as long as you humiliate yourself sufficiently uh, in coming back to the fold. Uh, so so maybe she, she knows more uh, than we do about the potential of her own uh, vice presidential ambitions. That being said, I think one of the things that would be interesting, and I'm really curious to hear everyone's thoughts on this, is what, what the relationship should be leaving sort of Nikki Haley uh, herself aside, although, of course, comment on that if you'd like. Um, what should the relationship be between uh, conservatives talking to um, sort of audiences on the left and the mainstream media, right? Uh, we saw Ron DeSantis basically take attack, like he's not going to do a lot of crossover media. He's not going to sort of tip the hat to uh, to, to mainstream media sources and left-wing sources, but I repeat myself, um, I do think there's there's a good argument that that hurt him a little bit, that he, uh, if he had taken sort of taken the fight more uh, to left-wing uh, news shows, then then uh, more people would be familiar with who he is and his, his platform. So there's always this tension, right? Um, and we all experience it ourselves when we're asked to comment on background, for example, on a mainstream uh, uh, media piece, as Jeremy just said, um, so what is the appropriate relationship uh, with the mainstream media for uh, people on the right, but more particularly uh, people running for office on the right? So I'll give you my answer and then I'll throw it out to you guys. Um, I, I think that it can be very valuable to place conservative arguments in front of audiences that aren't unfamiliar with them. Um, and I, I, that's why I think I've adjusted my thinking. I think uh, the, the Ron DeSantis strategy is maybe a little too strong. Um, in terms of, of denying yourself the opportunity to present essentially 
conservative ideas to a left-wing audience. Uh, but where I think a lot of the frustration and where that kind of strategy comes from, or a lot of the frustration is, is the sense that for a lot of people on the right, and especially elected officials, and this goes to uh, the, the the last segment about immigration, um, they seem to participate in the mainstream media in a way the only time that they're given a voice is in order where they disagree with their own side or in order to bash their own voters or their own candidate. And I think this SNL uh, appearance by Nikki Haley is exactly that, right? Do you think that SNL would give Nikki Haley a platform to really talk about that the handful of things, for example, on which she is actually right wing? No, they're not going to give her that platform. Instead, they're happy to give her a platform to hit at Donald Trump. And I think that really does describe so much of the interaction with with Republicans and conservatives in mainstream media. I mean, think about, you know, David French's column in The New York Times as the, the quintessential example of that. And I think maybe if we're trying to construct what's an actually uh, productive and helpful relationship for us as conservatives with the mainstream media, it would be that if you have the opportunity to make the the conservative argument in a new forum, then you take that opportunity but if that form is only being offered to critique your own side, even if those critiques are legitimate and you want to share them elsewhere, um, I, I think a good kind of rule of thumb is you 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 don't you don't go to the enemy's team to bash your your own, um, and that's exactly what Nikki Haley is doing in this SNL sketch. It's obviously what she was brought there to do, um, and I think the Republican base is very sensitive to that uh, and and really dislikes they they feel the contempt that that kind of um, that kind of excursion into left-wing media is heaping on them. And I, I think it, it will redound very badly uh, among Republican voters, although perhaps that is not what she's interested anymore, in anymore. So any bit of that you want to grab onto, uh, let's, let's throw it out. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I hardly agree with that as a heuristic in terms of how you think about how you're going to engage with these sorts of media. In other words, if you get to make your case, that's why you do it. If there's any version of you're about to write or say the conservative case for you know X left wing priority, then it's a hard no. Um, and I think it's it's really important also which audiences you talk to. I think about the time and whether or not you kind of agree on substance. I remember when Rand Paul was doing a lot of his early foreign policy dissidents on the Iraq War uh, and Afghanistan. He made a real point to not focus on the New York Times, but he would go to unquestionably conservative outlets and say, I'm going to make my case of why my position is the conservative position. And I think that's that's how you default. You don't go to Saturday Night Live, you get a Breitbart and you make that or, you know, the American conservative or, or whatever have you. So I, I do think that that's the right way to think about things. I don't know where uh, Nikki Haley's audience is. I actually think she's pretty much out of the VP running, I'm not super worried about that now. I think that, that Don Jr. and enough other people will kill that, but we just have to make sure that nobody of her ilk is uh, winds up in that number two uh, position to the best that we can control things. I think it's right, um, generally, that you do not use mainstream or left-wing media to turn around and attack your own side. I mean, you're basically becoming a useful idiot for the left at that point. We've seen time and time again how people who do that, people who um, lead the conservative flank and decide to criticize their own side is uh, that they're discarded as soon as they're no longer useful to the left and will immediately be attacked if they dare to shift even a little bit back to the right. 
I mean, you see this with people who represent the conservative seat on The View, right? They immediately become stars if they criticize Donald Trump. And then if they're like, well, wait, but I actually am still kind of conservative on this issue, then all of the hosts turn on them and they become persona non grata. And pretty quickly after that, they get pushed out of the chair. Um, so it's so silly to allow yourself to be used by a tool fundamentally from people who hate you. And I think there's a difference, though, between refusing to play that game and refusing to leak stories to the mainstream media or give exclusives to the mainstream media um, or generally play ball with them from a print perspective versus going on a show and having a debate with somebody from the opposite side of the aisle. Um, I just think those are two fundamentally different things that the right often gets confused about. So, for example, if you'll tell uh, like Republican comm staffers like, hey, maybe you shouldn't have given this story to the New York Times and now you're running to conservative media for them to play cleanup because they totally misrepresented your position or cited a bunch of quote unquote experts um, saying why it's a stupid idea and why you're horrible and bigoted. Um, they'll be like, well, but we have to be talking to the other side. And the whole point is that what you're doing is not talking to the other side. You're not actually getting your unfiltered views across to a new audience because it's necessarily being covered um, through a lens that is negative to your position. Um, and so I, I just hope that conservatives and Republicans can, can figure out this fundamental difference in how you deal with the media and how you should deal with the media um, because their general ineptitude over the past couple of decades has been just infuriating to watch. Um, and it's it's unbelievable, especially from people who um, call themselves communications professionals. Yeah, it's sort of corollary to Nixon's, you know, the, write it on the chalkboard, the professors are the enemy. So you know, write it on chalkboard, the mainstream media is an adversary. And that doesn't mean you never talk to them. It means you treat them like an adversary and you treat them like a tool to be used to achieve your own agenda. But what you certainly don't do is you go, you go on their programs and use them to bass other Republicans. You don't pull a Larry Hogan. You don't pull a Tom Tillis who did that, you know, writing op-eds in the Washington Post about why some Republican proposal is bad. You don't do any of that because Republicans, I think, in, and not just Republican, you know, intellectuals, but I think the base in general is very, very sensitive to feeling betrayed for a reason. It's like the heart of what established Republicans don't get. You're the failure of established Republicans to meet the base's needs and then do stuff that's total, you know, focus on tax cuts and expanding immigration. Um, that's what Trump keyed into so well and has keyed into for eight years. That's why he's going to be the nominee. He's the nominee again. Um, he gets that the Republican base is tired of people who are disloyal to them. So don't be disloyal. Don't use mainstream media to bash Republicans. Republicans. But if you're going to do a hit and, you know, realize that they're going to be adversaries, but if you want to use that hit to generate good clips of you being antagonistic, Go ahead and do that. That's the right answer. All right. So I'll pick it up now by covering this story in the New York Times about detransitioners. It's by a woman um, by the name of Pamela Paul. And the headline of the piece is, as kids, they thought they were trans. They no longer do. And for the most part, 80% of this article is great because it actually digs through the available research on these so-called gender-affirming care or sex changes for minors and how generally it's both ineffective and 
actually counterproductive in that it leads to a, a whole host of mental and physical issues with kids who go through this. It also talks about the fact that about 80% plus of minors who experience gender dysphoria end up growing out of those feelings by the time they reach adulthood. It talks about the UK model and how it's based, or the Dutch model and, and how it proliferated throughout the UK and now is being rolled back because they've discovered in subsequent studies that um, it turns out uh, reflexively affirming kids in their preferred gender uh, leads to nothing but destruction. So start to finish, it was somewhat refreshing to read this in a place like the New York Times, but there were also quite a few things about this article that were very infuriating. First of all, and this comes four years after Abigail Schreier first published her book, um, Irreversible Damage, which was one of the first deep dive investigations into uh, what, how we treat gender dysphoric children in the United States, as well as the social craze among teen girls in particular, and why so many of them were identifying as transgender. So in the meantime, four years that the New York Times basically refused to even accept that detransitioners existed and that their stories were worth telling, how many families have been damaged in the process. But then on top of that, Pamela Paul sort of weaves herself into all of these knots to present her case while rejecting the fact that conservatives were right. <laughs> um, she basically calls anyone who raised red flags about this in the past three, four years as right-wing demagogues. She says that detransitioners have been used as hapless tools of the right, that uh, the right still poses the biggest threat to transgender people because they want to deny them rights and protections and comes out against uh, bans on so-called gender-affirming care for minors. And it's just an incredible cognitive dissonance to write this long investigative piece about how there's literally no available evidence to suggest that sex changes for minors helps improve mental health outcomes. Um, but then to say that the these uh, treatments should be left available pending more research. I mean, wouldn't you obviously want to ban something that has no evidence that it works until you can prove that it works? It's just um, a, an unbelievable willingness, I think, to come to the full proper conclusion of what all of the evidence staring in her face tells her to do. Um, but the other interesting part of this piece that I wanted to get into a little bit is the fact that it was allowed to be published in the first place. Because as much anger I have at Pamela Paul for trying to turn this into um, a politicized right versus left issue, um, even as she says it shouldn't be, uh, you can't imagine, and again, the New York Times publishing this three or four years ago. And even now, it's kind of surprising that they allowed all of this evidence about the Tavistock Clinic and the Dutch model and some of the studies that came out of uh, children's hospitals in California being allowed to grace the pages of the New York Times um, through in a, a, an article like this. There's been a few opinion pieces in the New York Times over the past year or so that sort of went a little bit down this road. There was a defense of J.K. Rowling, for example. There was a piece uh, questioning gender-affirming care for minors and, and admitting that there wasn't a great breadth of research 
Um, this one is much more extensive in terms of how much data it actually grapples with. Um, but at the time that those opinion pieces came out, there were internal revolts by New York Times staffers, um, as well as coordinated uh, efforts to get the paper to apologize with outside LGBTQ activist groups. And the New York Times actually responded to those protests by saying that they were not going to stand for reporters behaving like activists or coordinating with activist groups and that their primary function was to 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 be journalists, which was uh, astounding after um, the Tom Cotton op-ed saga and everything else that we've been seeing in the media in terms of newsroom leaders turning over the keys to editorial direction to the young, woke staffers, most of whom should have had no fingerprints on the editorial process whatsoever. I mean, you you look at who's actually protesting and it's like a cartoonist and an art director and someone who copy edits on the night shift, um, like really low level staffers um, who mostly did activism in college and don't really have any journalistic experience. Uh, but again, the New York Times pushed back against them um, earlier this year in a rather shock move. And now we have this piece from Pamela Paul and I just wonder if if you all think it suggests, I mean, even with the right wing demagogue accusations, that some newsroom leaders are perhaps starting to turn the tide against these internal woke revolts of uh, in the media. Um, is this a sign that the adults are going to be back in charge and um, and and legacy journalists and and editorial directors and publishers are perhaps sick of woke mobs running their newsrooms and they've decided to um, finally push back and allow things that are closer to the truth to run in their papers. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here and say, uh, look, you, you mentioned Abigail Schreier's book from four years ago. Uh, the Times in 2021, um, pretty shortly after her book was published, published a like scathing uh, opinion about her book and others like it uh, called Transgender Childhood is Not a Trend. Um, and then if you think that like just this one piece by Pamela Paul, who, by the way, I actually find is one of the more honest. Um, I've had a few interactions with her. Like, I, I actually think she's probably on the short list of people in The New York Times that's not actively trying to um, distort everything that conservatives who talk to her say. So I, this is not like a personal sort of slight on her. Uh, but but the New York Times itself, just a, a few days ago on February 3rd, um, published this this very sympathetic article about a main liberal town in Maine that is trying to remove Abigail Schreier's book from four years ago from its library. Okay, and so like the, the, the mainline uh, sort of... Um, the line at the New York Times has not actually changed that much. Look, that being said, again, this kind of goes to the question of, of this complicated line between um, when it when it's actually positive for your views to get out to new audiences that need to hear them, um, and and when uh, you're just being a tool uh, for for your enemies. I think overall, it's probably a good thing this piece was published, um, especially a lot of the comments on it are. Uh, actually pushing back to a certain extent against some of that framing that Amber that you mentioned they're saying it's not just conservatives that are concerned about this and um, you know trying to frame it that way in, in this piece is is wrong so you have a certain amount of pushback um, 
anyway, I, I, I think this is all, overall, this is a good thing. It does show that there's some uh, some cracks in the ice in terms of, of this issue. And that'll be good for uh, the kids who, you know, are, are after all, literally going through this is not as a matter of battles of ideas. Uh, the fact that maybe there are more mainstream liberal mommies who allow themselves to entertain doubts about this because it was finally published in the New York Times. Uh, I think that's probably all to the good. That being said, there is for, for people on the right, there is this like really, you know, teeth sucking, inducing, like anger inducing frame, which is, you know, if I were, if I were to, to sum it up, it's my worst enemy is the person who saw this coming before I did. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that is just a fundamentally frustrating way. That's not uh, extending a hand in good faith and saying we disagreed on the in the past, but you were right about this issue. Like, how can we work on this issue, even if we don't agree on other things? That would be a more genuine way of going about this. But there always seems to be this this like purity politics need to distinguish ourselves from the evil right wingers. Um, and and that that is, you know, legitimately annoying. But even aside from the annoyance, I think there's a deeper problem, which is oftentimes too many people on the right are uh, not like we are sort of balancing the positive and negative of, of, of having this kind of article run in the New York Times, but sort of immediately embracing people who show any signs of, of not, um, you know, being wholly taken over by the woke mind virus. Oftentimes the solutions those people offer are to go back to essentially the detente of the 1990s and 2000s. Um, and I, I think that that's not a viable solution. I think they're very, we've talked about it before and I don't want to go on too long, but we talked about it before. I don't think that the 1990s actually represent a viable solution, a viable cultural detente that can last over time uh, between the left and the right. And so to the extent we pick up solutions from people uh, who, who have the kind of mentality that is exhibited in this article, I think that is that is to the, the detriment of the right. Yeah, I mean, I've I've worked on this issue for a while, and, and I've said it's actually, even though it's not my primary issue, it's it's like the one issue that what is happening is so horrible that I will take the win even if I get no political credit for it. Like, just we have to stop mutilating kids, period. So, I mean, I don't think practically, I think there's no way that we won't actually get political win out of being the party that that was against mutilating kids. But it's it's so horrible what's going on that really anything, any ally we can get, I just take them. I share your frustration about Pamela Paul's positioning, but you know, that's just what she has to do to like give her audience the baby steps away from idiocy that are gonna be sort of a process. And uh the thing I worry about though is for some of these uh trans folks like the ones I've battled here in Montana, I mean, if you've cut off your genitalia, right, like there's not an easy way back. Uh, politically to kind of say, hey, I made a mistake. I mean, you can do it. Some people have, but it's hard. And so the more people we have who kind of have irreversibly damaged themselves through these processes, even though I think we're going to win because it's just so insane, um, the more uh, challenge we're going to ultimately have uh, politically on this issue. Yeah, I think, I mean, we don't want to push the left away from the right answer here. I mean, this is one of those issues we, that should ultimately be out of partisan politics, that we all agree that child mutilation is bad, that we agree that modern gender theory is absolute nonsense, um, that, you know, biological sex is is real and that these surgeries are mutilating. Um, and I think it's, you know, it goes further than just children. I mean, ultimately, we want a world where these surgeries are simply banned, that they're seen as, seen as not up to the standard of care and that engaging them at is, is at a minimum medical malpractice. 
Uh, you know, you have a responsibility to do no harm. Um, you're removing healthy tissue uh, to fix a mental disorder. I mean, there's no other mental disorder where that's the appropriate remedy. The remedy is therapy. The remedy is uh, focused on the mind. Um, and the fact that you see so much desistance among children where, you know, they grow up and they grow out of being trans is just a giant red warning light that you shouldn't be engaging in medical interventions before they have that opportunity to desist at a minimum. But moreover, it's just, you need to, I, I think, you know, one thing the left does is uh, talk about the idea that gender is this social, you know, gender is a social construction. It's like, okay, well, then we shouldn't be basing policy around maintaining the validity of the social construction. Maybe we should just genders that what that means ultimately is that gender is fake and we should you know there are non-gender non-conforming ma males and gender non-conforming females that's fine it doesn't mean they're they're the opposite sex all right so then we'll toss it over to jeremy who is going to walk us through the trend of quiet quitting and why white people in particular might be signing on yeah, thanks so much. And this is actually based off a piece I did a little while back uh, in American Greatness uh, called, I believe that the headline was White Americans are quite quitting, quiet quitting America's elite institutions. And quiet quitting, for those of uh, you who are not familiar with the term, is a kind of uh, COVID era term and a kind of particularly the sense for email jobs, but it could be for anything where people are sort of showing up, but they're not really participating in anything other than a minimal way. Um, and in this particular case, uh, we really see this uh, kind of turning into a, a slow motion epidemic among white Americans in certain institutions. And the Ameri uh, media doesn't really want to answer why, but with quiet quitting and then actual quitting, um, this is in a reaction to a, a variety of trends I talk about uh, in my, my forthcoming book, Shameless Plug here, uh, The Unprotected Class on the Rise of Kind of Anti-White Discrimination. Uh, that's out in April. You can pre-order it now. Uh, has nice endorsements from Tucker and Victor Davis Hanson and Heather McDonald and a bunch of other folks. But but I kind of point out in this book and elsewhere some of the, the sort of trends here. We saw a huge fall in white army recruits in just the last five years from 44,000 to 25,000. And, um, you know, all, this was basically uh, not matched by any other group. So pretty much everybody else was flat. And they're sort of looking at this woke military and they're saying, no, thanks. Well, I mean, that would be a problem for any group, but it's even a bigger group in terms of our military readiness because disproportionately, these guys are the tip of the spear in um, in our armed forces. 80 plus percent of our special forces in Iraq and Afghanistan were white. So when you're disproportionately removing these groups, there's no way around it. You're, you're disproportionately um, military capability. Uh, there was a piece in Palladium magazine uh, on the competence crisis a few weeks back that got a fair bit of attention, talked about similar things within the military where you had a number of ships kind of crashing and getting scuttled. And there was a sort of post hoc review by Navy leadership. And a lot of folks really directly attributed this to uh, an emphasis on diversity over readiness in, in some specifics I don't have time to get into here. But it's not just the military. I mean, we're seeing this in college enrollment. If you look at white college enrollment over a five, 10, 15 year period, it's gone down, and, and everybody's gotten down actually a little bit, but but whites have dropped, and particularly white males have dropped significantly. And when you kind of do a little bit of a deep dive into the data, you see that in huge disproportion right now, the percentage of students who are academically qualified to go to college, but who are opting out, um, are, are white. And I'm actually even seeing this in my own family. I mean, my wife and I went to Yale. We're certainly a very academic-minded family, but 
but my older kids uh, who are high school age are kind of looking at the entire college experience right now and and with a jaundiced skeptical eye as they see kind of some of the woke indoctrination they have at their own public high school and just the way that they're being treated um, as white kids and uh, and you know what they might look forward to quote unquote uh, in uh, in college. So I think that this is a uh, a broader a broader thing, but we're seeing it not just that we're seeing it in federal contracting, and we're even beginning to see it in really elite institutions right now. I talk in my article about Goldman Sachs IPO. So Goldman Sachs, kind of the ultimate, uh, probably prestige big investment bank, now saying like we will not underwrite any IPO in the United States that has uh, doesn't have at least two non-straight white men on the board. Uh, they did the same thing in Europe, but nowhere else do you have diversity requirements. And so I sort of feel like white Americans are looking at this sort of thing. Um, the wall, they sort of feel like the walls are closing in on them to kind of use an overused metaphor. And they're looking for how can we opt out of this system that really doesn't support us, doesn't support our interests, doesn't support our needs, tells us that we are lesser than or that we're oppressors or that we need to get in the back of the line. And I think that this is this trend is going to have profound negative effects um, for our society that go far beyond just white guys and and really spread out to to all the groups in America. So I'll turn it over to you guys. Yeah, there's there's nothing more powerful than the feeling of being discriminated against on the basis of your race. And uh, that really sucks when it happens. And in modern American society, the most common way that is done in a sort of official, formal manner is to white men. Um, I don't know. I've had that experience a, a couple of times in my career. Uh, you know, something as simple as like the law, re law review admissions uh, were clearly biased and, and structured in a way to discriminate against me because of my race and gender. Um, you know, so... Uh, that's that's just one simple example of a, of a case in which this happens and it's it's very it's a radicalizing experience where you're like no 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 this this isn't america right like what about all that equal protection under the law stuff what about all that you know of like we we all we're all created equal stuff that that's not but that's not the design of, of a lot of these structures and i think ultimately you, you know if the left is allowed to have power long enough it's not just going to be bad for the individual white americans but as as jeremy points out it's just going to be bad for our country it's gonna be bad for our economy it's gonna be devastating for our military and i think that you know what are what is it that we're trying to conserve or i guess restore if you will as conservatives i think big part of what we're trying to restore is this colorblind meritocracy that drove so much of what is the ultimately great about America and our, the American story is the idea that whoever you are, you can make it, you'll be judged not on anything except your competence and your qualifications. And we've, we've the left's totally gone away from that for this sort of race communism. Uh, it's terrible for the country and I hope it stops. I, I think, and, and you know, that's one of many reasons why you don't vote for Democrats. Like it's just not responsible to ever vote for Democrats for president. You don't, you're not just voting for the president. You're voting for an entire administration staff and if you're staffing them with Democrats, you're staffing with people who want to discriminate you on the basis of your race. Totally unacceptable. And it's why I'm a, you know, a yellow dog Republican. I will never, ever, ever vote for anything except a Republican presidential nominee. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I agree with everything that's been said and and particularly about the, the competency crisis that will, uh, whether it's sort of an obvious way, I, I have my doubts about planes falling out of the sky. Um, but whether it, but in a thousand other ways, uh, we are facing an increasing competency crisis, and it's because we 
are abandoning merit in hiring and have been. It's not just now, right? We have at least for uh, since the 90s um, in a more serious way. And uh, we're going to see the consequences of that. There is a corresponding, what I would call, a competency opportunity. Um, and I really do wonder how long uh, the disproportionately white male uh, competent class that is quiet quitting um, in, in the way that Jeremy has described, how long they will be content not to receive the fruits of their competency and their labor, um, the honors in society for the competency and their labor. Um, I, I think that there that is a, a positively volatile political situation. Um, if you look at sort of empires of the past, it's never been a good thing to have a critical mass of smart, ambitious, talented young men with no way to advance in society and no way to better their position. Uh, that That's a, a sort of... <laughs> This is never a good position to be in as a regime if you have a large class of these essentially competent, ruthless, ambitious, um, smart young men. And they're out there. Uh, we might not see them. They might be quiet quitting. Um, but they, given the the way that our current system works, they're out there. There are, there are a lot of young white men who know that they weren't picked for a board or for a VP slot or for, you know, any number of advancements or for that matter, for an award as an author or for a special prize at work, right? Um, they know that they're being passed over because they're white straight men. Um, and I just, I, I wonder what they're going to do with that because I don't believe that that type of, as opposed to, I think, um, unfortunately, a, a, there have been a lot of of sort of unsuccessful young white men who have uh, medicated something, you know, sort of tuned in, tuned out, uh, dropped out, medicated themselves as we see the explosion in suicides and drug addiction. And we've talked about it on that uh, on this podcast many, many times. And I think that is also uh, associated with essentially not being needed or valued in the society in which they live. But this is a different class. These are people who are very successful, who would be very much more successful. And they know exactly, you know, they know that the people they're being passed over in favor of are not as good at their jobs as they are. Uh, and I, I do wonder what they're going to do about it because I, I, I think there there is an enormous upside to this. I guess we can call it a, a competency opportunity. Will is right that discrimination is infuriating, but I feel like it's it's almost more than that. It's, it's also the brazenness at which white people can be discriminated against. Like, I mean, if you just look at, um, you know, popular example, examples in culture, right? There will be a video of like a black woman acting crazy on a plane and she gets thrown off by the flight attendants and all of a sudden the entire story is about how the flight attendants were racist and everybody involved in the incident gets fired the clip goes viral on social media and within like two days the entire situation has turned in the favor of the perceived uh, oppressed minority then on the opposite side of this you have white people being actively openly discriminated against in all kinds of corporate settings they put it in writing, they brag about it, they they put it as a metric that should render further investment from equity firms and private capital, and everybody just shrugs their shoulders like it's no big deal. Um, I used to work for a radio station that uh, actually had a clause in their online portal that if you uh, recommended someone who ended up getting hired by the company that represented a racial or gender minority, then you would get uh, like $3,000 bonus in your next paycheck. 
But if you recommended a white person who got hired, then you would get nothing. And I remember telling people about this at the time and being like, hey, isn't this illegal? And everyone just was so blasé about it. Like, oh, well, it's just that is what it is nowadays. And so I think the obvious double standard uh, contributes to that feeling of anger and resentment among people who are being openly discriminated against. And and sometimes when the collective response is, again, a shoulder shrug, it can feel easier to just opt out of the system, as Jeremy said, a lot of people are doing. Um, with that, we're going to move the closing thoughts. Since I just spoke, I will not go first, and I'll kick it to one of the other three uh, contributors. All right, I guess I'll, I'll go. Uh, going back to the very beginning and talking about the, the Senate bill, I think Jeremy hit on something important, which is the idea that it's it's a good chance that, or not a good chance, but really, there's a very compelling case that Mitch McConnell needs to resign over this. I'm kind of reminded of when David Cameron uh, pushed against Brexit and the British public told him, no, we want Brexit. And he had to resign over it because he just didn't represent the public that he purported to. Well, Mitch McConnell just, you know, worked hard to negotiate in secret with Biden and Schumer on this immigration bill, and it fell flat on its face. He doesn't represent the base. He doesn't represent the party. And he doesn't he doesn't even represent his own caucus in the sense that you just had this massive rebellion by the, the Senate GOP caucus against what McConnell was doing. So, I mean, he should leave. It's 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 time. He's it. You know, he's in his 80s. Uh, he's done a lot of good work on things like judges, but he doesn't represent the base and he doesn't even represent his own caucus. And, you know, for the good of the, the Republican Party more generally, we need somebody in leadership who has who is touching grass on a more regular basis, who understands that. You can't just do this. You can't just put forward an immigration bill that is a joke and expect it to pass muster and expect you not be expect that there will be no rebellion. Um, and so it doesn't have to be Ted Cruz. It can be John Thune. I don't care. But at least John Thune, after, after watching his superior get defenestrated, will realize like, OK, I need to take seriously what's going on with the base. Um, and so I think I think it really is time for Mitch McConnell to resign as, as the head of the Senate GOP. You know, he's, I mean, he can serve out his term. I don't I don't hate Mitch McConnell. And I think he's done a lot of good work on things like judges, but he, he's just not up to the task anymore. Somebody else needs to run run the caucus. Yeah, I, uh, besides agreeing with you, Will, um, but I, I want to just pick up on something Amber said about uh, my topic because I think it was, was right on target. I, I mean, so much of my book was not any brilliant blazing insights, but just like noticing stuff that's right in front of all of our faces that's completely discriminatory and saying, Hey, this is discriminatory. This is bad. We shouldn't allow this. And and as Amber sort of touched on, we've sort of grown to accept this as like, oh, well, this is just the way things are. And you know, ultimately, I think my book and this article is really saying, you know, this is this is not the way things should be. Um, it is the way things are, but it's not the way things should be. We shouldn't be tolerating it, and we shouldn't just not be tolerating it in some sort of narrow sectarian sense because it's bad for white people, but because it's really bad for America. It's bad for merit. It's bad for all the sorts of things uh, that we value about this country. And so that's uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I, I thought it was time for Mitch McConnell to resign since my Tea Party days, but uh, I'd be happy to, to have it see it happen now. Uh, I actually have a very, very short final thought here. Um, Toby Keith passed away from cancer. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. The news uh, hit this morning, I believe. So uh, I think especially in the period after 9-11, he really represented something about America to ourselves and to the world. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to, to mark his passing as a, a 
not only a great musician, but a, a great emblem of a certain time period in America. So I'm so glad you brought that up, Inez. That was actually going to be my final thought as well. Um, I actually just finished writing a sort of obituary for, for Toby Keith um, and addressing a lot of the criticism that he received. People really painted him as this sort of like jingoistic, ignorant, um, worst representation of American culture. And when you actually go back and read a lot of his public statements from that time period and the inspiration for his songs, which, yes, were like written from a blue collar perspective of somebody who was just like talking about what was in his heart and on his mind, um, are are not like uh, the perfectly nuanced approach to foreign policy that like left wing art critics might want. Um, he was really trying to present a unified front and and had so much respect and love for American service members that he was making music for them um, to perform on USO tours. And he really only released quite a few of these songs um, because the members of the military who had heard them were so moved by them that they thought that members of the American public should hear them. And so I think he did a, a really great service to our country. He was someone who was brash, unapologetic, um, could not be really fit into one political box, actually. And in that way, I think represented a lot of blue-collar America. He actually worked as a an, uh, an, in the oil fields of Oklahoma um, until about the age of 30 when his music career took off. Um, so he was clearly very grateful for his career. He also never took himself too seriously. And uh, I think we would all do well to to remember him as the icon um, and music legend that he was. So with that, uh, we're going to close out this episode of NatCon Squad. On behalf of Will, Inez, and Jeremy, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I'm Amber Duke. We'll see you on the next edition of NatCon Squad.